Welcome to Living With, a podcast by Health Union that explores what it's like to live with a chronic health condition. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. This is a special episode of Living With, as instead of interviewing one person, I spoke to two of our advocates together. Jill Feldman and Ivy Elkins are both contributors on lungcancer.net. To start with, how did you two meet? I met Jill pretty soon after I was diagnosed with lung cancer. It, you know, I live in one of the suburbs of Chicago, and so does Jill. And we had tons of mutual friends, but we didn't actually know each other. I had heard of her before, but we had never met. And I have a couple of friends who know her. And I even have one friend who grew up with um, one of the founders of Longevity, and Jill is a past president of Longevity. So I had heard about her and heard about, you know, everything she was dealing with with lung cancer before I even knew that it would have anything to do with me. So when I was diagnosed, um, one of my friends got me in touch with her, and she was awesome. I mean, I was a complete mess because, you know, I'd just been told I had lung cancer, and she was on the phone with me for, like, two hours, you know, like, telling me all this information I needed to know and, and who I should contact. I was taking notes on everything, and she even get ended up helping me get an appointment quickly with the thoracic oncologist I go to today. So, I mean, she's been fantastic. And Jill, I understand that since that meeting, you guys have done a lot together. Yes, we have. I, um, you know, I tried to get get newly diagnosed patients involved and so ivy understandably a lot of patients get involved at different points in their journey and at first she was kind of hesitant about doing anything and really needed to focus on figuring out where she was and how she was going to handle the diagnosis and the treatment which is completely normal. And then, but it was once she attended an event and once she attended her first research event, I knew she would take off and just be fantastic at advocating for lung cancer. So actually, it's the past two years, especially, we have worked very closely together with the EGFR resistors. And one of our mutual friends uh, coined us as hashtag Jivey. <laughs> That's our name. <laughs> so people call us Jivey. So yeah, we definitely, we work very closely together and a lot, and it's wonderful. Can you each tell me about how you learned you had lung cancer? So I think I, my story is 
a much longer, more complicated. But I had, when I was 13, I had lost my dad and two grandparents to lung cancer. And then in my 20s, both my mom and my close aunt Dee Dee died of lung cancer. So I was, it's been a part of my life forever. And it's haunted me forever. And I didn't want my children to ever go through what I went through, losing a parent at a young age. And so I actually started getting periodic CT scans when I was 27, when my mom was diagnosed. And everything was actually, my lungs were clear and perfect till I was 36, 35, 36, and something showed up on a scan. And we watched it. Now, I was already involved in advocacy. So I was already involved in longevity. And we watched it for three and a half years until it kind of took a nasty turn. And at the time, I was president of longevity. So the irony of being diagnosed with lung cancer, the same disease that both of my parents died from, and as president of longevity, it, 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 when I think about it now, it's still really surreal. So it's not the average diagnosis that you hear about, considering I had already had this horrible intimacy with the disease. Yeah. But I imagine in some ways that that family history and knowing so many people close to you that have died from this must make it even more frightening in a way. Yes, it definitely, it definitely did. I, I had a really hard time. It's interesting. I had a really hard time, especially after it kept coming back. I feel like I lost out on on raising my kids for such a long time because I was so busy worried about them having to go through what I went through. So it was, it was really difficult. But also on the flip side, having the knowledge and the access to the lung cancer world and knowing what was going on in research, that helped knowing that I may be following in the footsteps of my family, of my mom and dad, everybody, but at least in the past five years, I, I had hope and I now believe that I could change that path, and I have. So it goes both ways. That's great. And Ivy, what about you? How did you, yours was different, right? How did you find out? My- my diagnosis, it was completely different. I had no idea that, you know, I could even get lung cancer. It wasn't on my radar screen. It wasn't, you know, a disease I really spent any time thinking about, you know, with regard to me. And what happened um, when um, I was, so when I was 47, and this was um, five and a half years ago, I started having some problems with my right elbow. I couldn't completely straighten it. It hurt a little bit. And the left left side of my neck also hurt. And no one could really figure out what was going on. I went to my primary care physician who thought that, you know, I had just 
it was an overuse injury just from using my computer too much. I had a little bit of an addiction going to Candy Crush at the time. So, you know, he thought, you know, that's, you know, what, what your elbow, you know, what your elbow pain is from, but it didn't get better. And it just didn't seem like it was normal. So over about a six-month period of time, I went to a couple of physical therapists. I went to a couple of orthopedists. I went to a rheumatologist. And no one could really figure out what was going on with my elbow in particular. They thought it was tennis elbow, but then it wasn't responding to treatment the way tennis elbow normally, you know, should. So the second orthopedist I had did an MRI of my elbow and found a mass in there that had eaten away at the bone in the joint. And that kind of changed everything. So I started being a little more fast-tracked at this point. They initially had no idea whether it was a bone cancer or something else. Um, So I had a biopsy done, found out it was malignant, and then found out that it was a type of cancer that doesn't come from the bones. It had to come from somewhere else in my body. So I had a PET scan and they, you know, traced it through my body and figured out that um, it had come from my lungs and, you know, the area of my bone, my neck, that those were metastases where it had spread from my lungs. And I also had a brain MRI and found out that I had eight very small lesions in my brain, but no symptoms really other than the problems with my elbow and, you know, some pain in my neck. So by the time, you know, I was diagnosed, I found out I had, you know, it was a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer, and it was almost unbelievable in a way, you know, how I made it from, you know, having a pain in my elbow to this full, you know, cancer diagnosis of a cancer that I never even thought that I would ever get. And it, it, it just, it took me a while, as Jill mentioned, to kind of come to grips with my diagnosis and treatment plan and everything. And, you know, kind of learn that lots of people, you know, my age, you know, my situation, do get lung cancer. And really all you need to have are lungs to get lung cancer. But I didn't know that when I first started the whole journey. Wow. And so you mentioned that the metastasis on your elbow ate away at the bone. Mm-hmm. How is it now? Like, have, can they treat that? Or, and, and can the bone rebuild? Yes, the bone, I was actually very fortunate because um, I was, I had biomarker testing and they found out that I had a specific mutation of lung cancer called um, an EGFR mutation. Actually, Jill has that as well. So that's another one of the things that kind of bond us together. But um, as a result of that, you know, throughout my, you know, whole treatment process, I've been on first one targeted therapy treatment and then on a second one. And when I started the first targeted therapy treatment within, I mean, I would say three months by the time I had my first scan, bone started growing back in my elbow. Um, it was the same thing. My neck bone was growing back in my neck. My brain um, metastases disappeared and my lung 
you know, masks and some of the nodules, which I had also shrunk away. And I stayed stable on that first targeted therapy treatment for almost three years. Then I started to progress a little bit and went through some more testing, blood biopsies, finally a tissue biopsy, and found out that I had a secondary mutation that's very common in EGFR lung cancer. And lo and behold, there was another targeted therapy that had been you know, approved by that point. It didn't even exist when I was first diagnosed. So I've been on that for the past you know, two and a half years or so. And I, you know, doing very well. It's an oral pill that I take once a day and I have had a fantastic response to targeted therapy. Wow. That's fantastic. And what these targeted therapies are just so amazing. And you both have kids and you've both written about milestones. How do you view milestones like your son graduating high school differently than someone who doesn't have cancer? You know, it's kind of funny because um, I now it's getting very close to, you know, my son going to college. We're probably about a, a, a month away. And I keep getting together with, you know, my girlfriends who are just beside themselves about how much they're going to miss them and how sad they're going to be when they leave. And I feel like I have a little bit of a different perspective because, I mean, when I was diagnosed, you know, my older son, that's the one who graduated from high school and is going to college, he was 13 years old. I totally never expected to be here seeing him go to college. So, I mean, yeah, I'll miss him, but I mean, I'm not really feeling particularly sad. I'm actually thrilled thrilled that, you know, he gets to go and I get to experience it and be part of it. And I'm just more excited about the whole thing than, you know, feeling sad about it because it's just, to me, it's a huge milestone that I didn't know if I would ever experience. And Jill, how old were your kids when you were diagnosed? Uh, My kids were six, eight, 10, and 12 when I was diagnosed. So young. Yes. And how, how are they now? How old are they now? So I, it, I was diagnosed 10 years ago. So 22, 20, yeah. So 18 and 16, they're all about to turn the next number. So it, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And how do you view milestones? Like when, when they achieve certain graduations or you're, you're watching them? I, you know, again, I think from my life experiences, I, you know, view them a little differently. I was 13 when my, my dad was 41 when he died of lung cancer. I was 13. My son was 12 when I was diagnosed. I was 39. So I was in a place where I could identify with my dad as a parent, and I could also identify with my kids and my son, especially at, you know, being in middle school and at the age he is having a parent diagnosed with lung cancer. And my kids only association with the disease was death anyway, at the time. So I, 
you, you know, my immediate thought was when my oncologist asked me what my goal was. And I said, my goal isn't to live to be 80. I said, my goal is to live to raise my children. My dad was never able to do that. And my mom barely did. So I, that was my ultimate goal. And I'm almost there. But really, every milestone in their lives has been, has been, you know, has meant the world to me. It, it has meant the world to me to be there for it. And especially my youngest graduated eighth grade two years ago. And I think that was the biggest for me because I had gotten all four of my kids passed graduating eighth, eighth grade because my dad died three weeks before I graduated eighth grade. Yeah. So watching my fourth and final child graduate eighth grade was a real, probably the biggest milestone that I, that I've experienced this far. And I, like Ivy, have never been sad about any of them. I've been grateful that I've been alive to be able to see it happen. And because, again, I know what it's like to have a parent that wasn't alive. And so it's, it's, it's a lot different than, I would say, the way my friends view the milestones when their kids either graduate high school, graduate eighth grade, go to college. And it just, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. It's living to be there and see those, those moments, those special moments with your kids and your family and your friends. And I just want them to keep coming. I know you've also written about that, that you've achieved these milestones and you want more. And, you know, it's not enough, right? Let's keep going. But, it, you know, for me, though, having been involved in advocacy for now it's been 18 years, there, there really wasn't much hope for lung cancer in the beginning. And even when I was diagnosed 10 years ago, it, it, goals were set in very short term. You know, people set goals three months at a time or six months at a time or a year at a time. And you, if you were really going to be realistic, and the tide has changed. I mean, we can set goals years ahead of time now, knowing that there are these targeted therapies, knowing that there truly are options after the targeted therapies stop working. So it's still hard to go far into the future, but it's a lot easier to go more than six months or live scan to scan. So that that has really truly been one of the biggest changes that I think allows us as patients to have hope and to believe that we are going to have more. Yeah. From, on the opposite side of that, though, let's talk about living with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do yeah. you how do you cope emotionally when you're living with cancer and it's kind of with you every day? You know, I think 
the way I cope is by not thinking about it as much as I can all the time, which is kind of an interesting thing to say since I am very involved in lung cancer advocacy and on a day-to-day basis, I usually am doing something related to lung cancer, but I kind of have removed myself from worrying about my own, you know, situation as much on a day-to-day basis. And at the point where I am right now in my treatment, I go and I see my oncologist every three months. So if I go every three months, have my scans, find out, you know, I'm, you know, still fortunate enough to remain stable, I kind of just, you know, kind of say in my mind, okay, you know, I'm not doing anything about that for, you know, another three months. And then I just kind of go on and live my life. So I guess it's really just kind of compartmentalizing it so that it doesn't take over everything in my life. I mean, it wasn't easy to do that at the very beginning. It took a while and it took some positive results to be able to think that way. But I also started thinking to myself, you know, the whole reason why, you know, I'm doing this treatment and, you know, doing everything I can to, you know, live longer and have a good quality of life while I'm living longer is so I can spend time with my family and friends and people I love. And if I'm spending that whole time, you know, worried and just, you know, concerned about, you know, the uncertainty of my own health, then I'm not really living. So I kind of have gradually switched my mindset over to to more like living in the present and trying to not worry as much about, you know, things that happen in the future. Now, you know, around the time I have a scan, or, you know, a few days before that, I definitely have major scanxiety. My family doesn't even like being around me. I'm so, you know, <laughs> you know, emotional up and down. They don't, they never know what they're getting. But, you know, usually other than that, I kind of try to keep it on kind of a steady, you know, keel where, you know, I really just wait for those periods of time when I see my oncologist to kind of engage with the uncertainty more. Yeah, I, you know, that I think it's the uncertainty is the hardest part to live with. Again, you know, people didn't live with uncertainty because you were either cured or you died years ago. And so now there's a lot more patients living with this uncertainty. And I, for me, again, my life experiences, you know, the disease has beaten me down time and time again for 38 years. And while I have no control over the physical side of it in my body, lung, I know I don't have that control. There's that stubborn side of me that says, but I am not going to let it steal my joy, take away, you know, anything I love or dictate how I live. So it, for me, it's been finding that control. When I first got involved in advocacy, it was to help me make sense of any pain and suffering from the losses I experienced. 
And then once I kind of got over the fear of my kids going through what I went through, it's kind of transformed into really helping me make sense of still everything I've gone through, but also turning something, this is the positive side of lung cancer. So without the advocacy, it would be scary and depressing because it would be all about who I've lost and the illness, my own disease, you know, illness. So it, you know, it really is a uh, a mindset that's not easy to reach, but is something that people like Ivy mentioned and myself, I think it really helps. I It's interesting because I just, a couple of months ago, uh, started a new treatment and I, I'm a very different patient when I have progression and I have to be prudent about treatment options. I'm a very different patient then. And it, it does become consuming at that moment. And it's almost frustrating and annoying. And you know, you're upset and you're angry because you figured out how to live with it for so long and then that happens and now it kind of throws you into a whirlwind of again uncertainty until you figure everything out um and so but then you can get back to that place of okay this is the role I'm choosing the role you're going to play in my my life. <laughs> and I'm I'm moving forward. So you're going to have to take back seat. So it is. I think it's hard. Everyone has different coping mechanisms and I like IV. I like to when I don't have to be prudent about treatment decisions, I like keeping it at arm's length personally as well. And I I also agree with Jill about advocacy really helping a lot. You know, I mean, for me, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't know anything about lung cancer. So I had to learn the language and the terminology. And I'm not a science person. I'm an English major, background in finance, you know, so that's, you know, kind of foreign to me. But I did a lot of reading. I started going to conferences and, you know, of course, getting more involved in advocacy. And that helped remove at least some of the whole, like, ambiguous uncertainty because I at least understood a little bit more of what was going on and I learned what was happening, you know, in my body and what it all meant. And now, you know, continuing in advocacy, you know, I can help provide my patient perspective to help, you know, make things better for, you know, myself and other patients. So in a way that gives me a little bit more control that I felt I didn't have at all when I was first, you know, diagnosed. And I'm a person who likes to have things in control. So the uncertainty is really hard, you know, sometimes, but the advocacy has really, really helped me regain a certain sense of control. And I think the uncertainty is really much harder. I think it's much harder on my family. It's much harder on my kids, for sure. 
and even my husband. And I, I understand that because as patients, you know, we know how we feel. We know what's going on in our mind. And I think our family members, I think they can get into the groove of, okay, mom looks fine, acts fine, um, she's going to be fine. But again, then something will come up and that uncertainty just, they, it strikes them with fear. So where we feel like we have a little more control, because uh, we, especially with the advocacy work we do, we know a lot more and really truly decision-making is ours with our physicians more because our families aren't as up to speed on everything that's going on. So I always, you know, I always, that's one thing I try to be sensitive to um, as someone who was a caregiver before that, uh, you know, how much harder it really is on them a lot of the times than it is on us. Yeah. I, I think going through middle school and teenagehood is tough anyway. Yeah. And then when you're dealing with with cancer on top of that. And when it's your parent, that that's gotta be very frightening and scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. So there's a huge stigma about lung cancer regarding smoking and people thinking that, well, if you smoke, you deserve to get it. And that impacts funding and treatment and how people are treated with lack of compassion and empathy. How do we break the stigma around lung cancer? It's going to be very hard to completely erase the stigma when we're categorized by it. So we're categorized by either a never smoker, a non-smoker, a former smoker, or a current smoker. And so I understand that Doctors need that information, they need the history, but they do for other cancers as well. So yet with lung cancer, that's, you know, the tobacco, I mean, they've done a great job of educating people on, you know, the dangers, but it's much, you know, it's much harder to, to erase it when it's in the same conversation as lung cancer. So one of the things we need to do is when we're talking about lung cancer, let's talk about lung cancer, not smoking cessation. If you're going to talk about smoking cessation, that should be involved in every cancer because it, there is, it is a risk factor to every cancer. You can't say the causal relationship, smoking causes lung cancer. It's a risk factor because not everybody who smokes gets it. In fact, the majority of people who do smoke do not get it. It is a risk factor, just like radon, just like family history, just like asbestos, just like other carcinogens. And so I think there from there's biases and prejudices from the government to our healthcare system down to the general public. And we try to, a lot of times, use the non-smoking angle to get people's attention. And 
it hasn't worked in the past 15 years that I've been in advocacy the way it should. And it's only alienated anybody with a smoking history because by having to declare, but I didn't smoke, you're basically not consciously, unconsciously putting the blame on 85% of the people of any smoking history. So years ago, when I started advocating, there were plenty of people with smoking histories that were advocates. If you look around the lung cancer community now, not very many of them are around anymore. And that is the reason why. So even within our community, there's a barrier and the stigma is causing that. Mm. So I don't think anybody truly agrees on how to break the stigma or how to erase the stigma. But I can tell you one thing. Part of the lack of funding was not only the stigma. It was the fact that people like my dad died three months after he was diagnosed. My mom died six months after she was diagnosed. That was the norm. So you didn't have advocates. Mm -hmm. Now we do. We have people like Ivy and myself and so many others that are living for years that were able to get out there and were able to educate and advocate. And that is part of what's going to help make a difference, help raise funds for research and also hopefully help reduce and ultimately erase that stigma. I think that's a great point. Thank you. Um, Ivy, can you tell me about Lulu the Lung? You know, um, a friend of mine a few months back gave me this amazing present. Um, there is a company out there that makes, it's called um, I Heart Guts, and they make different pillows and other things to represent various organs. So this friend of mine found me a stuffed plush lung um, and gave it to me as a gift. And um, it's very, you know, friendly looking, you know, pink and blue with a smile on its face. But what I have done with it is I've taken pictures of myself um, and my family traveling to different locations. I've even taken some pictures with some of my fellow, you know, lung cancer brothers and sisters when we've gone to events, um, just to show people um, out there that you can be living with lung cancer and enjoying, you know, your life and enjoying a normal life. And I think, you know, the, the public perception of, you know, of someone with lung cancer is either they're cured or they're dead. You know, it's kind of that dichotomy. And, you know, we are, we are kind of, you know, in the middle of that and there's a growing population, you know, like Jill, you know, said before, who are actually living with the disease. And I feel like by, you know, sharing pictures of myself with this cute, you know, happy looking lung, you know, it kind of helps people realize that it is possible to have a good quality of life and, and live well while dealing with lung cancer. I love that. And 
Jill, I've heard that you have a tattoo. Can you tell me, can you describe it and tell me what it means to you? Yes, I, um, I do. I was always one of those people who, oh, I would look at a tattoo or I would think about one. I'd be, oh, that'd be pretty cool. But then I kind of felt, well, what if, you know, the tattoo that's kind of like bell-bottom jeans where, you know, you but you can't throw it in the back of a closet or give it away when you're kind of done with it or it's out of style. So I never got one. I never really thought I would get one. And I started thinking about getting one uh, probably five or six years ago. And the reason I start I started thinking about getting one was because it was at that time that I not only saw but really felt and believed there was hope with lung cancer in lung cancer. I could see it with my own eyes with the community that was growing. I could see it and have been a part of it with the research that was growing and becoming more and more advanced. And so I went for radiation treatment for the first time. And I, you know, I guess I never thought about it, but you know, you have to get tattoos. They make the marks on your body. And so I said to my radiation oncologist, well, what, can I choose my tattoos? Kind of just, you know, being sarcastic. He's like, no. So I'm like, what about the color? Why does it have to be like blue? Can I, can I make it any color I want? I mean, that'd be kind of fun thinking I need some control. And he's like, no, like I was ridiculous, (laughs) right? So I was like, huh, okay. And so it was, I went in, I had the radiation treatment and I remember afterwards, I don't know, it was a couple appointments after I had gotten the tattoo and then I gotten it on my wrist and it says hope and the E is the cancer ribbon. And I wanted it somewhere visible So it was a constant reminder to me if I ever got down or I ever felt discouraged that there really is hope. And also at that point, let it be a conversation starter. I'd love to tell people that there is hope in lung cancer. But when I went to my first appointment to see my oncologist and my radiation oncologist after I had gotten the tattoo, my radiation oncologist noticed it right away. It's so funny. And he said, that's not real. Those were his first words to me. And I looked at him. I'm like, the hell it isn't. I said, you wouldn't let me choose anything. I said, so my defiant self decided that the next marks on my body were going to be what I want and where I want. I have plenty of scars that I did not sign up for. And this is going to be my choice. So it kind of all happened at the same time and at the perfect time. 
So even though I said I would never get inked, it truly is one of the most meaning, meaningful things to me. And it really, I do look at it and remind myself that there is hope. And my family history also illustrates that hope. So I, I love it. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. I really have enjoyed talking to you. And we, we love that you're a part of the lungcancer.net community. We love lungcancer.net. We love yes, we do. And it's our pleasure to be part of this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. To read Ivy and Jill's articles and join the conversation, visit lungcancer.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and consider leaving a review as reviews help other people find it as well. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward.